so we uh, have this kind of, you know, Wild West thing going on tonight. If you haven't heard about it, it's what we're doing tonight. And it got me kind of thinking about uh, this whole person of Jesus. And so I want to just sort of explore this morning a little bit of the wildness, if you will, um, in, in the heart of God and through manifest through his son and, and the way that he lived and the way that he uh, engaged this world and the way that he instructs us through his life and ministry and death and resurrection. And uh, amazingly, I, I want to start... Uh, that's not what's amazing. I would like to start in the second chapter of the book of John in, in verse 1 and read through verse 22. Um, amazingly, in, in just the second chapter of, God, of John's gospel, and you get all this in the first chapter as well, but you get sort of this unexpected glimpse of Jesus, of who he is, of what is important to him, and you get these allusions to his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so it's all kind of packed into this one little chapter. There are a few more verses in the chapter than what I'm going to read to you today. I commend them to you. I'm not hiding from them. Uh, I encourage you to read them. It's in the Word of God. It's good stuff. Uh, But we're just going to read 1 through 22 and sort of take a look at this idea of a, a wild Jesus, an unpredictable Jesus, a Jesus that is well outside. He's not just outside the box of conventional religion. He kind of kicked the box and shredded it and said, I don't need a stinking box. Let's go. And so um, I want to take you into this kind of uh, wild glimpse of Christ. And we'll begin in the first part of, of chapter 2 in the Gospel of John. This will cover uh, two stories that are very different, um, and I want you to pay attention to what these two accounts have in common. They They are part of the same narrative, if you will, um, but they're very, very different. But we're going to try to take a look at what they have in common. So beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana by Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the rim, to the brim, excuse me. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast 
tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. About this, I'm sorry, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, if you invite Jesus to your wedding, he will bring 12 people with him and they'll drink all your wine. Right? Pretty clear. Um, The good news is, he'll make more. Right? So, in both of these situations... Jesus does something that is completely unforeseen, uh, with the possible exception of Mary's perception. Um, Unpredictable. There was no way anyone could have anticipated his actions in either one of these cases. He steps into a wedding, and at the very moment where okay you're hosting a party what's the last thing you want to happen okay maybe nobody shows up that's the worst thing right Um, what's that you run out of food or wine or whatever it is right that's not okay and as a host or a hostess that obvious shortage is going to reflect upon 
And there will be perhaps a little bit of embarrassment. Uh, if they're close friends, nobody's really worried or bothered by it. They'll just kind of roll with it, right? And you'll, you'll open up the freezer and thaw something out or whatever you have to do to make it work, right? Um, if you're planning a wedding, you want to be a couple of steps more prepared. Am I wrong? No. You, you want to be on top of this because you're bringing all kinds of people. Uh, you want it to be a celebration. You don't want it to uh, reflect poorly on the, the marriage that's being formed. You, you, you want everything to go well. And so I, I love the point where Mary reveals her, her sort of woman's perspective. Oh my gosh, they've run out of wine. And she turns to Jesus and just says that to him. Um, she didn't ask him to do anything. She just said, they have no wine, right? Um, now, let's see. Any grammar hounds in here? You've got like the interrogative, which is a question. You've got the imperative, which is a command. What do you call just a regular sentence? Declarative. Okay, so this would be would this be the imperative use of the declarative? Like she's just stating a simple fact, but Jesus understands women. Right. So when my wife says, the trash can is full, I don't just take that as a point of information, right? Well, I might, all right? Um, you know, that's good to know. If I have trash, I'll save it for later. No, that's not what she's saying, right? She's saying, get off your duff, turn off the game, come over here, take the trash out to the garage, put it in the big brown thing that I don't touch, right? That's what she's saying. Um, so Mary uses the declarative either as an interrogative or an imperative. We're not really sure. Um, and Jesus picks up on the cue, right? He, he, he gets it. And he replies in this rather abrupt manner now, what's interesting to me is, is the, the Greek is actually not fully translated in, in any of our modern Bibles, okay? He, here's what he actually says. He says, um, and I'm, I'm going to translate it a little bit differently, but he says, um, what's that to me and to you, madam? All right, I, I think there, there are many commentators who think Jesus is being abrupt to Mary, or rude even, almost like right on, you can't accuse him of sin, right? So he's going right up to the, to the border of rudeness or something. I, I, don't think, I don't think he's being rude. Um, I think he's, he's actually making a much larger point. And I was, I was, I pulled my oldest daughter over to, to me where I was, you know, kind of thinking this through 
this week, and I read the passage and asked her what she thought, and here, here was her comment. She goes, well, that story is not about the wine. And I went, you're exactly right. It's about Jesus, and, it's, and he is revealing something about himself in his response to his mom. Um, it's more than ironic that just, you know, a few moments, if not just a few seconds, after he says, hey, this isn't my problem, and it's not your problem, what do you want me to do about it? He turns around and solves the problem, right? So I, I don't think he's rebuking Mary. I, I think he is, in essence, saying, let me, let me show you something about who I am. Let me show you, let me reveal a little bit of my self to you. Um, in the same way, who walks in to the temple of God and just starts clearing the floor? Who does that? What, what, what would a person have to think of him or herself to have the gumption to just walk into the temple and bring about a reckoning? So, these two stories are similar in that they reveal similar aspects of the person of Christ to us. And I want to I begin with one of those aspects that these stories reveal, that, which is our call to trust in the authority of Jesus. So, his response to Mary, I I don't think is, he's being rude. I don't think he's being necessarily even abrupt. I think he's actually making a point. I think his point is, you know, hey, um, how do I say this? Uh, man, or, or Mary in this case, does not get to determine... Um, when my time has come. But, by the way, my time has come. You're, you're right, Mom. You, you, you discerned correctly. But I just need to, I need to make clear that I'm the one who is initiating this. This is me, for the first time, moving into the world as... Savior, as Messiah, as the promised one. And so, Jesus sort of has this weird interchange with Mary, and I think what it is at the root of it is he's saying, I, 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 have, a, I have my own authority, Mom. I really do. It's, it's been given to me by God, and you're actually right. You, you, you realize the problem, and you, realize, you turn to me, good, um, now I got it from here. I'll take care of this. And so his authority is demonstrated in his response to his mom. And his authority is demonstrated in his entrance to the temple. As he, sort of, he effectively says, I have the authority to clean this house. 
to bring a reckoning where it is needed. So, okay, let's talk about that first aspect of Jesus' authority, where Mary reminds us that we are to yield to his will in his timing and by his word. And Mary sort of, um, I think, comes to this realization, I would say, uh, in harmony with Christ. You know, she, he, sort of, he sort of says, Mom, I've got this. And, and she's like, you're right. And she turns to the servants and says, just his word, go by his word. Whatever he says, that's the word to follow. And she sort of exits stage left, and Jesus takes us from there. Um, there is a clarity that Mary's response gives as to our call to yield to the will of God in his timing and by his word. In Christ's reckoning at the temple, uh, we are, our trust in, in Jesus, in his authority, is a call to hold to his priorities. He essentially says, wait a minute. Why are we here? Why do we have this place? And I'll just, I'll just try to give you a, a brief uh, context for what, what, what he was stepping into. The temple was the centerpiece of Jewish worship. And at the center, sort of, of the temple was an altar. And sins were brought into the temple along with an animal. And that animal would be sacrificed. And the, the most favored part of the animal, which was its fat, would be burned on the altar as, a, as an incense offering, as an aroma pleasing to God, the Bible says. Um, we were to burn the, the best, so to speak, um, and for God. That's given to God. And the rest of the animal would then be uh, taken off the altar and carved up. And the priests would get a portion. This is for most sacrifice, most daily sacrifice. Um, the priest would get a portion and then the person who brought the animal would get a portion and they would go home and eat it in almost a sacred type way with their family. This was a special meal. Um, but the, one of the problems with Judaism in the first century is that there were Jews uh, as far away as Persia on the east, you know, east from where you're looking, east of Jerusalem, and there were Jews as far away as Spain west of Jerusalem and sort of scattered all around the, the rim of the Mediterranean. Uh, and there's even some evidence in the New Testament they went, the, the, there were Jewish settlements all the way down to Ethiopia. Um, so the Jewish faith had spread literally all over the known world. And the Jewish biblical requirements for these sacrifices required you to go to Jerusalem, to the one true altar of God, to make your sacrifice. So here's what happened. Here's what would happen over time. People would say, oh, Abe, you're going to Jerusalem for Passover? Here, here's a hundred bucks. Buy me a sheep, sacrifice it for my family. You can keep the meat. Abe would be like, sweet. 
I'll take my sacrifice. I'll take your sacrifice. I don't have to haul two animals on a ship across the Mediterranean. I just show up with the money uh, and pay for two sheep there. I take them in to the altar, get them sacrificed, go home and have a barbecue, right? Um, And, of course, Abe's money came from Spain or Crete or Persia or wherever. And so, conveniently enough, the money changers would set up in the temple. It's like, oh, you've got weird money? Well, we can take care of that right here. And here's our ridiculous exchange rate. Right? And when you said, uh, well, that seems a little high. I think I could get a better exchange out on the street. They would say, well, part of the proceeds go to the Lord when you exchange your money in here. Right? And, and so there was a whole economy developed around the requirement for sacrifice. And Jesus, we'll, we'll get to this fullness of this point in a minute, but Jesus is essentially saying, it's over. This nonsense is over. Y'all are coming here for the wrong reasons. And I'm going to lay down the one sacrifice that will end it all. So you better get out of here. And you better get down to uh, the recognition of who I am and the authority that I bring with me. Because I'm fixing to change the game. And so, uh, Jesus calls us to trust his authority. And he calls us to depend on his power. The power to change, which we see in the miracle of turning the water into wine. Um, This was probably not potable water, all right? This probably came from a first century cistern somewhere on the property, and I don't know how much you know about stagnant water sources, but bad things happen there, right? So Jesus tells the servants, draw up some water and fill these cisterns, and it's probably not drinkable and as soon as they get them full he says just take a cup dunk it in there take it to the wedding coordinator which they do and everything's changed what was once undrinkable um, ceremonial water is now the best wine anybody there has ever had. That's change. It's dramatic. It's instant. And it reveals a power unknown to us. Um, You know, some of us have the ability to make wine or beer, right? And some of us don't. I'm not looking at you, Jason, on the don't part. I'm just, I'm just, you know... um, But for us, it takes time and a certain amount of ingredients and following the instructions and, um, you know, I don't know. I don't don't read them either. Um, Yeah. Jesus 
brings to our lives the power to change. The, the rationale and the, the passage, the disciples look at what's happened at the wedding and they go, if he can do that, he can do anything. And, it, and the passage tells us it, it evoked faith from those who witnessed what happened. He can change anything. And he can bring good out of bad. He can change that that bridegroom's shame into glory um, where he would have had to just say sorry folks party's over thank you for coming all right they had the ability to now continue the celebration to enjoy to celebrate Jesus gives us the power to change And he brings with him the power to cleanse. As he cleanses the temple and he cleanses that water, um, he reveals to us a call to share in his passion for purity. To move from a position of selfishness to a position of seeking, thirsting for holiness and righteousness those things which are not natural to ourselves we're to share in his passion for purity and we're to ask him to cleanse our own hearts um yeah there's a fun little thing that jesus did with this idea of a temple when he said, you know, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he wasn't talking about the bricks and the mortar. He was talking about the human soul. And he says that through me, or he indicates that through him will come cleansing and forgiveness of our sins. That the final sacrifice will be made. And this whole sort of misguided show taking place around the temple of God will be abolished forever. He says, I've got this. I've got the authority to do this, and I've got the power to end this, and I will. And you're going to try to destroy me, um, but on the third day, Uh, Just like he walked into the wedding on the third day, if you notice that in the opening line of verse 1, on the third day, he walks out of that tomb. And he says, everything's changed. And the final sacrifice has been made. My blood has been shed. Your forgiveness has been granted. And no one can take that away. And so we're to trust in the authority of Jesus. We're to depend on the power of Jesus And we're to believe in the person of Jesus. This Jesus who walks into the wedding is giving a sign to anyone who's watching. And there weren't many. There was his mom, 12 disciples, and some servants. 
he, he didn't get up in the front of the wedding and take the microphone and say, hey, everybody, it's me, God. Welcome. It's good to be with you. All right. He goes back to the kitchen where nobody's really watching and to a few underserved people, he reveals who he really is. He says, this is, this is who I am. This is, this is my sign, if you will. And everybody who saw it got it. That this was not about the wine. It was a miracle that pointed to the glory of God which resides in Christ. The sign points to something like all signs do. And the signs point to his glory and they serve to solidify our faith. That is the purpose of miracles, to point to the glory of God and solidify the faith of those who are here among us. Um, We are called to see the signs. They are clear, they are evident, they are everywhere, they are current, they're all around us. And we're to be those people who pause periodically in life to look for the signs, to see that to which they are pointing and to head in that direction. We're to see the signs and we're not to miss the point. It's not about the wine and it's not about the whip. I love the fact that Jesus picked up, he made a whip. He sat there and braided cords together and then said, you better get out of my way. Um, dang. He was serious. And that Jesus is the same one who would die for our sins, who would lay down that final sacrifice, who would give himself for a bunch of selfish, crazy, sinful people like us. We must not miss the point. The point is Jesus, his death on the cross, which he points to when he's asked, what gives you the right to clean out this temple? And he says, it's not about the temple. It's about my life, my death, and my resurrection. And so the point is that he died for our sins and he was raised for our hope, to give us hope. He says this weird cryptic thing that John tells us he didn't even get when Jesus first said it. The temple will be destroyed and on the third day I'll put it all back together. And all the disciples are going, okay, um, he's got power, he's got authority, but I think he might be nuts. And the Jews who were there were like, um, it's taken a lifetime to build that thing. I think 
average lifespan for a male in the Middle East in the first century was about 46 years. That's about what you could expect. And uh, I'm 47, so thank you. Appreciate that. Good to not be in the first century. Um, it's taken a lifetime for us to get here. And you're going to put it all back together in three days? And Jesus says, don't miss the point. It's not about the bricks and the mortar. It's not even about the altar. It's about the final sacrifice. It's about my love for you. And that when that sacrifice is made, it's not a final death. It's a new beginning. Because on the third day after that sacrifice is made, I'm going to show you something the world has never seen. I'm going to show you love through the sacrifice. I'm going to show you forgiveness and grace. But through the resurrection, I'm going to show you power, authority, hope, security. That if I can do this, throw it at me. What do you got? What do you got that's bigger than my love? There's nothing out there. And he knows that. And so we are ultimately faced with a Jesus who has authority and who has power, but who at the end of the day is a person who loves, who gives, who sacrifices, who forgives. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your word and at this wild Jesus that jumps out of the pages sometimes and surprises us. Lord, that you are not the God of convention and conformity, but rather the God of love and extravagance in your pursuit of our hearts. Lord, that you stopped at nothing to bring us to forgiveness. And that even the death that you died on our behalf could not be kept in the grave. You rose from the dead and you set before us hope eternal. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for that hope. May we live out of the, the strength of that truth in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.